Good afternoon, Risen Hope. How are we doing? Awesome. Uh, let me, uh, actually, if you have your Bibles, make sure I get this right. If you have your Bibles, um, and I hope that you do, please grab them and turn with me to um, John 4, verse 43. And as you do that, I'm going to ask God for help. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. You are good to us. You are mighty to save. And you are worthy of our affection and adoration and love. And I pray that as we come to your word, Father, that you would remove any error from my mouth. Help me to see and to say what is clearly here in your word and that your spirit would come and work in my heart and work in the hearts of my friends uh, to glorify your name to make much of your son before us so that we can see the realities and the glories that are in scripture with clarity um, and with joy. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So John 4, 43, and I'm going to read through 40, uh, 54. It says, After the two days, he, that's Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So, three months ago, we were in the Gospel of John, believe it or not. Three months ago. Uh, it was October of last year, um, which is shocking to me because it feels like a lot's happened since then. And today, we're finally returning to the pages of this book, and I'm thrilled about that. If you recall the last series we were in, when we were in uh, the book of John, sorry, my mic is all over the map here. <laughs> the last series we were in when we were in the book of John was a series that was called He Taught Us Love, talking about Jesus, Jesus teaching us love. And uh, it was about the Samaritan woman who he encountered at the well in John 4. And uh, as we were coming to the end of that series, uh, I really did not know how to handle the text that we were just reading. I had no clue how that fit in with the, the whole narrative. It seemed to me like an unrelated incident 
that was just somehow wedged between chapter 4 with this encounter with the Samaritan woman and the events of chapter 5, which we're going to read God willing uh, in the coming weeks. But the more I read this passage, the more it became clear to me that it is deeply connected to chapter 5 and serves as a kind of foundation for all the events and words that Jesus says in chapter 5, uh, which is our current series, the series we're in right now, which is called The Son Shows Us the Father. The Son, Jesus, shows us God the Father. Um, and this isn't a concept that should be new to us. We've been in John since the beginning of 2019, off and on throughout the last two years. We've seen this same reality surface over and over and over again in this book. Um, in fact, it began with the, the first chapter. If you remember, John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word there in John 1 1 is referring to Christ. It's referring to the Son. And John is saying that the Son, Christ, existed from all eternity. Before there was any creation, before there was any universe, He existed both with God and incomprehensibly as God. But then verse 14 in chapter 1 continues with something that's even more mind-blowing. It says, And the Word, the Son, Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So this Word, Christ, became flesh. He dwelt among us, and his glory, the, the display of his worth, his beauty, his majesty, as he shines in all that he is, that glory, John says, is the glory as of the only Son from the Father. So let's think about what that means. The reality of God, who God really is, is actually glory that shines from the Father through the Son, through Jesus, to us. Christ is revealing to us in the pages of Scripture who God is and what God is like. And this is the central premise that John begins his book with, the idea that Christ came into the world to show us the glory of God. Hebrews 1 says it like this, The Son, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, and the firstborn of all creation. He says, it says that he is the imprint, or that, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the imprint of God's nature. And this is the focus of chapter 5. The central theme of chapter 5 is this reality of Jesus showing us who God is. It's the Son showing the Father. But there's another Father and Son relationship that we see at the very end of chapter 4, and that's where we're at right now. Um, it isn't God the Father and God the Son. It is this official who comes to Jesus, and his Son is at, on the verge of death. His Son is about to die, and Jesus is apparently the only one who can do anything about that. So what I want to do is I want to explore this, this scene before we get to chapter 5, which is going to happen, God willing, next week. I want to explore this scene. I want to make three observations. And I want these observations to serve kind of as guardrails or a foundation for us as we move into chapter 5. So 
right here at the beginning, verse 43. It says, after two days, after the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. So Jesus is leaving Samaria, which is the whole narrative that was in John 4. There was a revival in Samaria, and all because of this encounter with the woman at the well. And this entire town has come out of the city of Sychar, all these people, to see Jesus. They hear the words of Jesus Christ, and they believe him. Verse 42, just above the passage we read, sums it up really well. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for now we have hurt ourselves, and we know that this Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, remember, these are Samaritans, and we spent a few weeks just processing how this, why this is so stunning. Samaritans and Jews never interacted with each other. There was no deep relationships between Samaritans and Jews. Um, in fact, there was friction. There was, there was animosity. There was hatred. And he shouldn't even be talking to a Samaritan, no less a Samaritan woman at a well. And then this revival breaks out after this scene. And now Jesus is leaving the Samaritans. He's been there two days and he's heading to Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus grew up. He grew up in a town called Nazareth, and he's going back to Galilee. But John, after he says that uh, Jesus is going there, he says something strange. He says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, which is strange. John is saying that Jesus goes to Galilee, and the reason that he goes to Galilee is because he testified that they would not honor him. That's why he goes there. That's what the four at the beginning of that sentence is. And that's weird. He's going there because they will not honor him. But the strangeness of that statement actually doesn't end there. If you look at verse 45, John says, so when he, Jesus, does come to Galilee, the Galileans welcome him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So now the Galileans who won't honor Jesus welcome him. Strange. And if we look closely, we can see that John isn't, like, he's, he's not making a mistake here. He is connecting all of these concepts. He says that Jesus is going to Galilee for he testified that a prophet has no honor in their own hometown. So when he gets there, they welcome him. And in verse 44, I mean, Jesus is saying they won't honor him, but in verse 45, it looks like they do honor him. So what's going on here? What are you doing, John, in telling us the narrative this way? Well, John gives us a clue. He tells us why they're welcoming him. They're welcoming him because they saw everything that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, all the signs that he was doing there. And if we were to flip back to the feast, it's in chapter 2, we can we can see what is wrong with this welcome in Galilee. What's malfunctioned about this welcome in Galilee? John 2, verses 23 through 25 say, says this. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So John says here that, that many people believed Jesus when they saw the signs. 
yet Jesus himself did not entrust himself to them. That is, Jesus didn't believe them. Jesus didn't give himself to them. And the reason why, John says, is that he knew something about them. He knew, it says, what was in man. And these people, inside these people, wasn't true, sincere faith. They saw signs, and they knew Jesus was special, that he could do things, and yet they did not receive him in a way that honored him for who he really is. And this is why the welcome at Galilee isn't what it first appears to be. It's not welcoming Jesus for who he is as the Son of God. They're welcoming him as a fellow Galilean who happens to be a miracle worker. He can heal people. He can do signs. And this response, this welcoming, this false honoring that you see here isn't new. I mean, it is a pattern that we see throughout the ministry of Jesus. We see it. We see the pattern uh, in... uh, the book of John, and we see the pattern in, uh, in and throughout the Gospels. When we see his ministry, we see it all over the place, but this is also a pattern that exists right now in the present day world. This idea of loving Jesus on your own terms, loving him how you receive him and accept him um, as a miracle worker or as a healer or as an ethical, moral teacher. My mic is struggling with me today. <laughs> Um, it's because I forgot to put it on earlier and I was trying to put it on during the singing and that never goes right. <laughs> um, and, and, and so they're accepting him on their own terms and, and this, is true about the, this is true about the current world. The idea that we would receive Jesus on his terms in modern culture is really unthinkable. And so this false welcoming, this false honoring that the Galileans are showing is a, a false kind of faith, a false kind of receiving Jesus that, if I'm, if I'm real with you, in the end saves no one. But what's so amazing about this scene is that Jesus knows this about them, and he is graciously and compassionately pressing into their unbelief, their dishonoring. He doesn't stay with the Samaritans who believe him, who actually do believe him and have received him for who he is, he goes back home to Galilee where they just want a Galilean miracle worker. Where people don't believe him and just are trying to kind of exploit him because he's special. They, they have ideas of their own agenda of how they can use him. And Jesus presses into this false honoring in verse 45, not despite it, but because of it. He presses into it knowing that this is how it's going to go down. And that is the framework for why this story happens in the first place. That's why it comes into being. And we're actually kind of reminded of Jesus pressing into a a situation where they're not going to honor him. In verse 46, it says that Jesus came to Cana, which is the same exact town from chapter 2 where Jesus turned water into wine. Remember the wedding scenario? We had three weeks, I think. Uh, in that text. That was his first sign. That was the first time Jesus did anything that was miraculous, according to the book of John. And if you recall, immediately after that sign, John tells us why Jesus did it. Why did you turn water into wine? 
John gives us an explanation, and it really explains to us why Jesus does any signs at all. This is what he says in verse 11 of chapter 2. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and listen to this, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory. So we see right here the purpose of signs, the purpose of of miracles, the purpose of all these things are to help point to the glory and the worth and the beauty of Jesus Christ. They manifest who he really is. That's the main purpose of all the signs. That's the main purpose of all the miracles. They reveal the glory of Jesus. Yes, they bless people. Yes, they heal and mend broken bodies. They do all of those things, but that's not their main purpose. Their main purpose is to show us how valuable Jesus is, how infinitely valuable he is. They exist to compel us to embrace Jesus, not as a miracle worker, but as a treasure, because they show us who God is. And now Jesus here is going back to Cana in Galilee, and it says that an official approaches him. An official here, the word there in Greek, is an officer of the king. He works for the king. He may be a a Gentile. We don't know for sure, but this official comes to Cana from about 25 miles away. He lives in Capernaum, which is down by the Sea of Galilee, and he walks roughly 25 miles to get to Cana. That's a day's journey, a day's journey. So this official has come all this way, and he is pleading with Jesus to heal his son. His son has a horrific fever. According to verse 47, he is at the point of death. And so this is a life or death situation for this man. And if you're a parent, and you've had a a child with a bad fever at any point, you know something about what's going through this man's mind. You would do anything to help them lose that fever. Absolutely anything. Take it for yourself, whatever it might be. And this man is doing anything. He goes to Jesus. He hears Jesus is in town. 25-mile walk. That's all right. It's worth it. And he goes. And verse 47 says that he asked Jesus to come down to Capernaum to heal his son. Maybe he wanted Jesus to come there, lay hands on him. He'd seen it done before. Jesus could do this. Just come with me back to Capernaum. But Jesus' response here is stunning. Verse 48, he says, so Jesus said, or it says, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Which to me feels harsh. That feels harsh. This man just wants his son to live through the night. So why are you you saying that, Jesus? There's actually a few reasons he's saying it. I'm going to give you two of them. The first is this, the you in Jesus' sentence, both yous actually, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, are plural in the Greek. We can't see that in the English text, but they are plural. That means he's not just talking to the official in front of him, he's talking to all of Galilee. He's talking to the very people who saw the signs at the feast and yet only have this superficial, self-serving faith in him, which isn't rooted in who Jesus is, but rather what he might be able to do for them. That's what, that's what uh, the you means there. In other words, Jesus is engaging the main defect, the main problem with what these people believe about him. They only believe the signs. 
That's all they want. They want signs. Which brings us to the second thing that he's doing, and he is right here shining a light on what is of eternal significance in this event. And I, I think it might be a shock to us that the child's life, as precious as that is to Jesus, is not the most important thing in this interaction. That might be a shock to us. What, what, what is of eternal significance, eternal importance for this man, for his child, for his entire family is that they actually receive Jesus for who he is, that they believe in him, that they embrace him. And this response that Jesus gives this man would be harsh if he did not care for this man's soul, but he does. He deeply cares for this man's soul, and he did not come to Galilee by accident. Just like he didn't go to Samaria by accident in John 4. He went because he had an appointment with that woman at the well. And he went to Cana because he had an appointment with this man here. And he knew that he was going to change lives. Jesus never does anything by accident. Never. I remember John 4, 40, uh, 34. Jesus is talking to his disciples out of that, after that encounter with the woman at the well. And he says specifically, my food... They're like, can we get you some food? He's like, no, 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 you don't need to give me food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my sustenance. That's my life. That's what I do. And part of God's will, part of the will of the one who sent him is this conversation with this man right where they're at. Jesus here is doing the will of his father. And God loves this official and his son, and his family, far beyond any capacity that you and I have to care about his situation here. Jesus wants this man, and this child, and this family to know true life. True life. I'm not talking about 70 or 80 years in this world. I'm not talking about continuing on in our current existence. I'm talking about eternal joy in the presence of the one for whom we were made, the living God. And that reality can only happen through real, sincere faith in Jesus, really wanting him. The official doesn't quite see that yet, and so he continues to plead, as any parent would. Verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. You can almost feel the agony in his voice. It's wild how something's written 2,000 years ago, and I kind of know what it sounded like when he said it. This is real for him. And Jesus looks him in the eye and responds to him very simply, go. Your son will live. And then in verse 50, we see something amazing. It says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That is amazing. He does this, listen, despite there not being any visible sign. He can't see his son. His son's 25 miles away. He doesn't know what's going on here. He's only, at this point, heard a word. Jesus speaks a word, and he believes it. And he believed that word enough to head back to Capernaum, 25 miles, and get all the way back home to see if his son actually survived. That's what he believes. This is not superficial, self-serving, false faith. This is 
real faith. All he has from Jesus right now is a promise, a promise that his son's going to live. That's all he's got. But that's enough. That is enough for this man. He believes the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he is trusting Jesus' promise, your son will live. And this faith is, of course, as we get to the end of the story, rewarded on the way back home. His servants meet him and explain, your son recovered. The first thing he does is say, what time? What time did he recover? And evidently the fever broke at the seventh hour and the official does the math in his head and realizes very clearly this is not a natural recovery. This is not a coincidence. That's when Jesus told me he was going to live. Jesus healed his son. This wasn't a visible sign. This wasn't something where you could see it and you got it on camera. He knows this. Nobody knew that this had happened until after the fact, after he did the math. And verse 53 tells us to summarize this event, the official believed, all of his household believed. And so what we have here is a picture that salvation has come to this home. They believe. They've embraced Jesus Christ, which is huge. We are talking about eternity. And I think we, we kind of like, because we live in, we don't think about these matters, eternal realities enough that this doesn't hit us the way it, it, it should. The greatest need that this family had wasn't that the son would survive a horrible fever, as, as important as that is. The greatest need that this household had is that they would all believe and that they would trust and receive Jesus and therefore inherit the eternal life he came into the world to offer. So when Jesus looked at this man and said, your son will live, That was more true than anybody could have suspected because that son will live now forever with his family. And that is specifically what Jesus is, is after here. Now this scene at the end of John 4 as we make our way into John 5 is a, a scene that acts as a foundation for everything we're going to see, God willing, over the next few weeks. And we're going to see some of the same themes pop up, themes about resurrection and death, themes about signs and the purpose of them, themes about Jesus' own testimony. But the central theme that we will see in John 5 or is this, this theme, which is that the Son is showing us who the Father is. The Son shows us the Father, and that's what we see here in Cana. Jesus shows this official who God the Father truly is. And what I want to do is, as we move into John 5 in the next coming weeks, I want us just to consider three things, three simple observations. I think there are three profound truths that all of John has kind of been flowing into, but that we come to at, in this story, and they act as a bridge from the events in Samaria, where the people heard the words of Jesus and believed, to the events that we're going to see next week and follows in Jerusalem, where they really have a hard time with what Jesus is saying. And I want these three truths that we're about to look at here to really grip us. I want them to get a hold of us. I want them to bring us into chapter five so that we are doing what the official did. We are saying, we believe your words, Jesus. We believe you. Not just superficially, not just for some self-serving way. We receive you for who you are. Because I'm, I'm gonna be real with you. 
Jesus, for people who claim to love him, Jesus cannot be an accessory. He cannot be a nice to have. He cannot be just something we have on the side when his words are easy or convenient or when he's ready to heal us. Jesus, for those who've encountered him, must be everything to us. Must be everything to us. So here are the three truths. Number one is this. What we see in this story is that true, authentic faith is believing Jesus for who he says he is. That's what faith is. It's not just believing an idea about Jesus. It's not just believing what we want him to be in our minds. True faith is believing what he's communicated to us in his word. That's true faith. It's embracing him as the only son from the Father, receiving his glory as, as a source, the source for eternal life. And this is the entire reason that John wrote his, his book, the gospel. John wrote the gospel, and, and if you remember, like when we first started studying this back at the beginning of 2019, which feels like it was 10 years ago after last year, um, but at the beginning of 2019, like we, we began not in John 1, at the beginning of 2019, we began in John 20 with John's summary statement of why he wrote the Gospel of John. Do you remember this text? Listen to this. Now, Jesus did, John's basically collecting all the stuff that happened in, earlier in the book. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones we will see as we go through this book, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's goal. That's his whole purpose for writing this book. In fact, that is actually the entire purpose that we have. This book called the Bible is for us, whether we are unbelievers and whether this is like the first time we're actually encountering Jesus or whether we are believers and we are just coming back over and over and over and over to see Jesus more and more and more. All of us come to him, and when we see these signs, the response we should have is faith. I believe that you are the Christ Jesus. I believe that you are the Son of God, that we would have life in his name. The signs exist in this book to point to the reality that Jesus is every single thing he says he is. He is all that he says he is. And when we see him for that, like when, when the Spirit opens our eyes and we see him for that, we come to him because we're just convinced. We are convinced that he is totally worthy of our adoration. He is. That's what faith is. It's receiving Jesus every day. I mean, John 6 will show us that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. John 7 will show us that he is living water. It is receiving Jesus every day, not just as a means to an end, but as our treasure. And so we should just be clear, as the official did here, we should absolutely come to Jesus with every single need we have. We bring our needs to Jesus but what we need to see when we look him in the face with the eyes of our heart is we need to see that Jesus actually is enough. He is sufficient. And faith in him, receiving him, is what unites us to his sufficiency 
forever. That's the first truth. True, authentic faith is receiving Jesus on his terms. The second truth is this, that when Jesus says something, and this is related to the first one, when Jesus says something to us, it's true. Straight up. It's true. When Jesus says something to us, it is always true because Jesus keeps his promises. In fact, Jesus is the only person who can make promises and guarantee that they will be completed, period. That's what happened here. He promised the official that his 25-mile journey back home would not end with a casket in tears, but that his son would live. He says to this man, go, your son will live. And the man believed Jesus' word. He believed a promise. That's all he had. Jesus promised something that was impossible. And then coming home, he finds out the impossible actually happened. Why? Well, Jesus keeps his promises. He keeps his promise. Not only does Jesus, uh, he's the only one who can do this. Not only does he have the love and the compassion to make extraordinary promises like this, but he has the power to keep them regardless of the circumstance. No matter what the circumstance is, the child in this story is only alive because from 25 miles away, Jesus speaks a word and he breaks the hand of death, reaching out to grab this kid. And he says, no, not today. It's not gonna happen today. He literally like cancels death's appointment with this kid and a child who was about to die lives. And we're gonna find out in the coming weeks, God willing, how that's even possible. Jesus actually explains why he can do those things. But the bottom line for this point is this. Know that Jesus always keeps his promises. He always does. And the greatest promise that he has made to the world in this book is in John 3.16, which all of you probably know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That's called a promise. And that promise in this story comes true for the official, comes true for his child, for his entire household. They believe in Jesus. And so, I mean, just imagine what happened here. This is not just a medical miracle. This is, not, this is greater than a physical healing. These people passed from a state of spiritual ignorance, spiritual blindness, and death to eternal life, the entire family. This is real, true, abiding life, not just a few more decades on this planet. What this official and, and his family received was an eternity in the presence of their creator where there is never-ending, unparalleled joy, being face-to-face -face with the one for whom we were made. That's what they got. The real miracle in this story, and we're going to see this as we move through John because he, he, he goes through great lengths to make this point. The miracle of this story is that in a sea of people who just wanted to use Jesus for their own purposes and agenda, God reaches down into this man's soul, opens the eyes of his heart so that he can believe a promise that is impossible for somebody to do on their own. Whatever he thought of Jesus before this event one word from Christ, your son will live. Convince this official to look into the face of a man who claimed to be God 
and say with his heart, I believe you. I, I believe he's going to live. I trust you. And I think some of us need to hear that today. I really do feel like, I mean, I need to hear it every day if I'm real with you. In the middle of doubting, in the middle of hopelessness, in the middle of loss, like maybe you've lost something over the last year, you need to hear this. When Jesus makes a promise, listen to me, he keeps it. He will keep his promises and he keeps them forever. So trust him. Believe him when he talks to you, when he speaks to you in his word. That's the second. Here's the third and final truth that I want us to see today. This is my favorite. There is a father and a son at the center of this story. But it's not the official and his sick child. The official and the child are merely foreshadowing the central reality of John 5 that is about to hit us in the coming weeks as we go into that text. The theme of this relationship between God the Father and his only son. That's why this story is even here. It's not a coincidence that this story, a story about a son and a child who is about to, or a, a father and a son who is about to die, comes immediately before a watershed moment in the Gospel of, of John where Jesus explains how incredibly, intimately close he is to God the Father. That's not a coincidence. Think about this story we just read in John 4. There's his son. He's about to die. But he doesn't. He lives. And not only does he live, but his entire family receives eternal life through trusting in Jesus. This story points to a greater father-son story because the origin of the eternal life that this family receives is the cross of Jesus Christ where God the Son dies on a tree. That's the origin of this story. Think about this. In order for this family to have eternal life, Jesus needs to die. The Son needs to die in order for this little son to live. In order for the father to get back his son from the brink of death and to get infinitely more than that, God's own son had to be given up to death and die in their place. The greater story at the end of John 4 going into John 5 is the cross, the reality that makes Jesus' promises to this man and to each of us even possible. The, pro the promises of Christ are true, not because he's really good at soothsaying, not because he's really great at making good promises that he can keep. They're true because although they cost you and I nothing, they cost him everything. Everything. We, we can't afford to miss this. In order for you and I to have eternal life, even to have the capacity and the inclination to believe in him, a cost had to be paid for that. He purchased that, and he paid for that cost. He paid that cost with his own life. Despite everything that you and I have done in our lives, all the ways that we've sinned, all the ways that we've dishonored God, all the ways that we really just relegate the creator of the universe, the one who sustains everything to the side of our thinking or completely abandon thinking about him at all. 
all of the ways in which we disregard him, years of sin and rebellion against the Father, and yet he holds out this gift of eternal life to us freely because he bought every ounce of it with his own blood. He purchased it all. We owe nothing. It is all paid for. And so in the next few moments when we, as we sing here, um, I invite you, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, to participate in communion. You're welcome to do that. You're not obligated to do that, but if you'd like to, you can. There are single-serve communion cups out in the foyer, and when we start singing, you can go grab one if you'd like. Um, and as we do that, I really want us, even as we just come to begin this series, I want us to reflect on the preciousness and the sweetness of the promises that Jesus has made to us in his word. I want us to believe him. He tells this man, go, your son will live. And if you've trusted in him, let me just say this, if you haven't trusted in him, you can guarantee that if you do, if you receive him, if you trust in him, you will live. But if you have entrusted, if you have trusted him, I want you to know that his words to you every single day of your life is this. You will live. You're going to live with me forever. Not just for a few more decades. We will be with the Father for all eternity, despite everything that you and I have done not to merit that, not to earn it. In fact, to do things that disqualify us from it. Christ pays for every single cent of our sin by dying in our place so that he can say to us without any hesitation every single moment of our lives, you will live, I promise you. Forever. You will live. And so Risen Hope, trust in Jesus. Trust in him. There is no promise he will ever make to you or has ever made in his word that he will fail to keep. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. He has paid for every single promise in this book with his own blood, and he will make all of them real. And if your faith is in him, his promise to you, according to 1 John, is this, eternal life. Eternal life. It's not just living forever. There are not words to describe the joy of being with the one who made us. And so I won't. I'll just pray. Let's bow our heads and pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, the realities of Scripture are too high. There is no way for me to adequately depict the grandeur and the glory of your promises to your children. And so what I pray is that as we worship here in the next few moments, and really as we go into our lives, Father God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to taste even just a fraction of the extraordinary glory and worth and beauty of Christ Jesus. That we would recognize that not only is he real and not only is he alive, 
but that he is speaking life into us every single day. And he's faithful to keep his promises. Father, as we go into John 5, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds and help us see the, the glory that is there. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.